0: Journeying with Newman, the path to sainthood. Newman on the church as the guardian of truth. I'm Joanna Bogle. I'm an historian, broadcaster, lead history walks around London, and have just published a book on Newman's London, describing all the places that were associated with him, where he was born, went to school, and so on, in London. I'm fascinated by Newman on the Church. In his letter to the Duke of Norfolk he explained what the Catholic Church is in a Britain where a lot of people simply didn't understand it. As the Church is a sacred and divine creation, so in like manner her history, with its wonderful evolution of events, the throng of great actors who have a part in it, and its multiform literature, Stained though its annals are with human sin and error, and recorded on no system and by uninspired authors, still, it is a sacred work also. And those who make light of it, or distrust its lessons, incur a grave responsibility. For John Henry Newman, the crucial, the supremely important thing about the Catholic Church was its claim to be teaching the truth. He recognised and understood that the Church must be concerned not with power, but with truth. This brought him into conflict with other often devout, energetic and godly men of the church in his day who felt that power was essential because it enabled the church to present the truth and to punish those who seemed opposed to the truth. But Newman saw that they were getting things the wrong way round. Truth convinces because it is true and power can often effectively sideline truth and can certainly make it harder for the outsider those who see only the power, to find, admire, love, and honour the truth. Newman came to understand that the Church, as the guardian of truth, had made mistakes. Stained though its annals are with human sin and error, as he put it. Eloquently, but bluntly. Well, yes, burning people alive in the 15th and 16th centuries, for example, for teaching heretical opinions or writing heretical footnotes to Bible texts. This was a point crucially noted by the great Pope John Paul II who, on the eve of the second millennium, called the Catholic Church to repentance in a public ceremony led by the bishops and cardinals, including the man who would become his successor, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, later Benedict the Sixteenth, expressing sorrow for wrong things done. It was a prayer addressed to God, not to the media or to popular culture, and had an authenticity and poignancy because of that. In Newman's day in the 19th century, the church would have been nervous of such an act. And yet it was beginning to ponder its relationship to power. For centuries, the church had, in its official form, been comfortable with an alliance of altar and throne. The French Revolution had shattered that comfort, but in a sense affirmed it too, because the terror and martyrdoms unleashed tended to ensure the notion that any alternative to a formal Catholic established bond between throne and altar would inevitably lead to horror, murder, savagery. But at the same time, there were other gentler challenges that raised deeper questions. As the 19th century progressed, the church in the new United States of America across the Atlantic from old Europe began to thrive and prosper without any formal state bond, but with an open relationship in which schools, hospitals, missions, publications, and a vast network of parishes and convents and monasteries and more could flourish. Freedom, not power, seemed to work well for the church. And in Britain too, the church was thriving, freed following the Catholic Emancipation Act of the chains that had bound it unjustly following the religious bitterness of the post-Reformation era. In Britain, the Catholic church in this new era sought no formal structure with the state. Catholics found that simply being free to practice and preach the truth was energizing. And so as the 20th century arrived, it seemed that history was uncovering a reality that had become blurred. Where the church seems to lack political power, power to ban or burn books or ban or burn people, she may flourish. None of this meant that Newman despised the church's rich traditions or ignored the heritage of the centuries, on the contrary. In his letter to the Duke of Norfolk, he set out, by way of responding to criticisms of the church by the prime minister, Mr. Gladstone, the truth of the church's nature, She is glorious in her cherishing of truth. We cannot, we must not, ever allow ourselves to do less than honour her. Her story is a great one. Saints and martyrs, heroes and heroines, great missionary endeavours, glorious art and music, the foundations of modern sciences and of the great universities, and much, much more. We cannot, we must not dismiss or ignore all of this. Muddled though it all is, and muddled too by cruelty and justice, by human sin and error. In John Henry Newman, we find a passion for truth that we should follow. It is his greatest single gift to us.